heavily, I'm a clown. This episode of the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast is sponsored by WTFHappenedIn1971.com. The economics meme taking the world by storm where all of us are trying to find out the answer to what the heck happened in 1971. WTF 1971 also has a merch store now. You can find it at WTF-1971.creator-spring.com. I'll post a link to that down in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks for the support. Michael, how you doing, man? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, a little under the weather, but besides that, I'm doing very well. Um, thanks for coming on the Bitcoin Echo Chamber. You're, you're the first guest that I've had on the show in, in quite a while, actually. Great. Uh, thank you for having me on the show. Um, now, you and I, we haven't like really talked before other than just engaging in little dialogues like on Twitter, which, which doesn't say much, but uh, you've been up to some, some interesting looking things. You've been talking about um, <laughs> vacuum balloons. Can, can you tell us more about this? Yeah. Um, the, the vacuum balloon idea is uh, it's a type of airship um, or it, it's a technology you would use for airships. I know there's a, a lot of Bitcoiners that want to, to bring back the glory days of large airships and, and build large structures. Um, a vacuum balloon is taking it one step further. Uh, it's instead of using helium or hydrogen, you have a, a rigid structure that is both able to withstand the atmospheric pressure, yet still lighter than the air it displaces. Um, and a lot of people's first reaction to that is, uh, that seems like a lot of work or impossible for a very tiny benefit uh, because having a vacuum is going to be lower density than helium or hydrogen by a tiny margin. And that margin is definitely going to be smaller than uh, the weight of your structure. Uh, but it, it can operate in a couple different ways that a regular balloon would not be able to, which is it can go up and down really easily. Uh, so if you have helium or hydrogen and you do something to allow it to go up, uh, it, it can be hard to come back down and you sometimes need to tether um, or you need to vent gas if you want to go really high or you have to compress it and then you carry a compressing chamber. Uh, so that ability to go up and down with the vacuum balloon means you're just pumping air in and out. And, and it's probably not worth spending a ton of time talking about vacuum balloons because it's not really something anyone takes seriously at this point or no one's really even attempted to do it in any serious way just because it seems like something that, that's so implausible uh, but when you, you look into to what the the actual constraints are on it it's not space elevator hard which is sort of getting a, a first anchor point of, of how ridiculous is this thing it's a lot easier than a space elevator and the reason for that is um, your strength limitations in terms of you have to have something that resists the atmospheric pressure while having a certain weight, which means you need a, a certain amount of strength per unit mass. Uh, you actually can achieve that with an ordinary 6,000 series aluminum. Uh, 
which people are pretty surprised here because they think you need some super exotic new material that doesn't exist. What's tricky about it is uh, the buckling, just like a, an, an aluminum can. If you, if you stand on it very carefully for a moment, it'll support your weight. Uh, but very quickly, there's going to be some imperfection, some instability, and it will crush. And it's the same issue with the balloon. So it's really about being able to fix that. And the work that I was doing previously, developing uh, advanced composites manufacturing techniques where based on making new types of shapes out of composites, um, sort of led me into thinking in this direction that maybe now we finally have some techniques that could make this balloon viable. Interesting. And you think nobody is doing, why, why do you think nobody is already doing this? It's, it's possible that there's some classified work and, you know, it could potentially have already been done. Uh, I, there, there are a handful of, of papers on it. So if, if you look up vacuum balloon, you'll find maybe half a dozen sort of serious research papers, some of them military fun, but, but really it was not military. It's usually like some master's student doing their thesis project on it at a military university or something like that. Gotcha. So you think because of the advancements in materials engineering, um, maybe a lot more of these things are possible than, than we give credit. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 people don't necessarily have a good sense of what's possible until the tools are available. Mm. A lot of what people do is taking the same tools they have and looking at how can we make this thing a little bit better. Um, but once you start doing something that's a radical departure, there's too many what ifs involved and there's no one whose company is, is built on, on jumping through so many um, conditional uh, risks. Mm-hmm. And so where, where do you come into this? So like, tell us a little bit about yourself or like whatever you're comfortable sharing, like your background is in like aerospace engineering, right? Yeah. So I sir, I co-founded a company called Mantis Composites. And, and what I like to tell people is it's, you know, the strongest materials in the universe. Um, because a, a strength when people talk about um, that in, in sort of a headliney way, of, oh, we made this super strong thing. Usually it's not something that's going to be useful. It's something that was maybe synthesized in the lab at a tiny scale, and it has mm -hmm. no practical bearing on the world. You can't actually make things out of it. And when you actually dig into what the, that means, it, it really means very little because if you say, what is the strength of the bond of a covalent bond between two atoms? You can say, okay, that is ridiculously strong. And if you were scaling that bond up to a macro structure, how strong would that be? And say, oh, it would be the super strong thing. You can't just scale an atomic bond um, to an arbitrary shape. It just doesn't work. Uh, and so when people talk about things being ridiculously strong, oftentimes it's not atomic, but it, it's as useless in a practical sense. They can't actually make things out of it. Um, so when you dig down into what can we actually make that is also very strong, it's really, it's just your regular carbon fiber is the strongest thing we have in, in practically speaking. Uh, and, and what my company did, uh, and it's still going, I, I left uh, about um, almost three years ago now, um, was enabling those materials to be made into new shapes. And it turns out that 
shapes uh you know it's like a triangle is, is a very strong shape it's really integral to what a material is and once you have the capability to manipulate shape through software in a very precise way uh you and you do this with certain types of material you you, you sort of transcend the concept of a material and it becomes sort of a, a broken abstraction uh, so the matter is still there but in terms of if you say what is this material how strong is it it's almost as if there's no material there that the material becomes this emergent thing that is a, a blend between the matter and the, the shape it's in and when you do that it's basically five axis continuous carbon fiber 3d printing with the full strength of that carbon fiber with the ability to do intricacy to a certain degree, um, then you get this uh, nonlinear jump. Uh, and pretty much doing that for a while um, was what actually got me into Bitcoin. Um, so if I could just ask a question a really... real quick before you go off on the, the yeah. Bitcoin tangent. Um, so basically what you're saying and I might be totally wrong here, but what you're saying is that when you get to a certain level of engineering proficiency uh, in terms of how you're tailoring the compound that you're using to, to create the carbon fiber structures, you're actually not losing, um, you're, you're not tied to some of the physical limitations that you may have had, like in terms of what you can actually do with those structures in terms of their dimensions and their shape and size and those types of things. Yeah, so... so let me take a step back with it, which is um, carbon fiber, the way it's been used, is this incredibly strong material. So it goes back to, you know, what's the difference between the headline and what you can actually get, which is you look at it on paper and you'll see something like, oh, it's uh, 10x stronger than uh, aluminum by weight. And it's like, okay, that sounds pretty good. So if I make a bicycle out of this, is it going to weigh 10 times less? <laughs> and Obviously, no. Or, you know, is my plane going to be 10 times lighter? No. Um, even the parts that are carbon fiber are not anywhere close to 10x lighter or anything like that. You know, you might get 10% lighter. So it's uh, hmm. what happened. I thought it was 10x better. Um, and, and the issue is that the, the ways of forming carbon fiber um, lead to, for, for multiple reasons, uh, lead to a significant deterioration and in this theoretical thing of what it means to be a material that can actually be scaled. Um, and we've had other materials such as metals, which we've developed machining techniques where we can actually make quite intricate shapes. So shapes can be pretty good. Mm -hmm. And what happens is those shapes end up closing the gap to a very large degree, among other things. So when you look at something like metal 3D printing, you know, there, there's a ton of cool applications for that. Uh, but from a structural performance perspective, there's only so much you can gain because the shapes were already pretty good. Mm. Um, but with carbon fiber, there's the huge deficiency. So there's this massive leap ahead moment, which is unlike basically anything people have, have seen for decades it's like jumping from making a plane out of wood to metal it's a really discontinuous jump and it's not something that happens with any sort of regularity it's not like a, a software product where things get uh, gradually better over time okay interesting all right so i'm with you so you're basically saying um 
carbon fiber and now with, with 3D printing and our ability to manipulate the ways that we build structures out of carbon fiber is, is a pretty massive jump in terms of our ability to engineer new systems. Yeah, and to be clear, it's it's not 3D printing in general because mm-hmm. you know you, you, you take a 3D printer that, that you buy off the shelf, you're not going to be able to, to make useful carbon fiber parts out of it. So uh, what Mantis Composite did was uh, we completely built a machine from the ground up. You know, it's the electronics on it are halfway between a regular 3D printer and uh, an electronic warfare helicopter. Not, you know, it's the electronic warfare helicopters, you know, another order of magnitude. But you look at the, the wire harness in this thing and there's over a mile of, of wire in the machine. Wow. Uh, there's like a hundred variables that are being continuously or not, but, you know, many times per second being uh, observed and modulated. Uh, it's, it's, it's very different from a regular 3D printer. Yeah, I, I'm uh, somewhat of a hobbyist 3D printer. Like I, I've played with mine a bit, but certainly like I think of it, I just have like a typical Ender 3 and I think about the constraints of that system. And like you, a lot of times you have to get pretty creative if you want to build anything that's more complex than just like a single um, piece of plastic. You know, you have to print in lots of multiple pieces or you're limited to certain size dimensions or you can only print things of certain shapes where they have to have rather large bases just because of the way that it prints from the, the bottom up um and then you oftentimes you have to have all these supports in place and are those all constraints that you're dealing with here too like in terms of what it is that you're able to fabricate yeah and to to tie back in the thing that i mentioned briefly it's a five-axis machine mm-hmm. um, so just to, to clarify what that means it's a regular 3d printer um prints layer by layer they you print a flat layer and then you print another flat layer on top of it but with the five axis machine, what that means is uh, you can have a nozzle that instead of just pointing down all the time, that nozzle can tilt. And in addition to that, your, your fifth axis, um, you can do it in different ways. But in, in this machine, the build plate rotates. So in the first version, you can get to any point in space. Uh, with this, you can get to any point in space from any angle. And that means you can basically print in any direction that you want. Uh, oh, that's really which interesting. Means from a software perspective, yeah, you, you get a lot more complexity there because uh, someone says, okay, make this part. And then it's, okay, how do you make that part? What path in space do you take? Right. Not only the, the path in space that you take. That basically totally eliminates all of the constraints of a typical like three axis printing design system that, that I can think of uh, having five axes of control. Probably not all of them, but certainly a lot. Yeah, of them. It, it completely changes the, the approach. The other it, thing is, you have to do this with with carbon fiber because you you get a regular three D printer and you get some variation between how strong is it in plane uh, along the those fiber the the bead directions as you're printing, whereas if you pull on it vertically, with carbon fiber you can be 20, 30 x stronger in the direction of the fiber could still be about as weak in the through thickness direction. So you really need to be putting those fibers in the direction of your load, which goes back into why is this so much better than something else? It's because you can design structures such that all of the loads are combined with just bundles of fibers all in the direction that you need them to be. Okay, interesting. And and again, like there are certainly limitations there, right? I mean, you, you have to take in 
to consideration like okay should for whatever reason the system be prone to some sort of like shear force like it's, it's going to be a big problem but it's just kind of part of your design specification right yeah absolutely it's it's hard to design with positive uh, there's just some stuff coming out now about the the 787 with some of the 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 things that were getting glued i forget what parts um, they were using PTFE, which was not within their regulations or their gui Boeing's guidance. And uh, some things are actually uh, below the, the critical um, uh, design uh, strength requirements. So that's a little bit sketchy. So think about that the next time you're flying in a 787. <laughs> Hopefully yeah, never again. Person, uh, leading a program that said, okay, after... Um, after all this work in uh, composites, um, the, we basically have realized we know just about nothing about composites. So another confidence-inspiring mm. thing about uh, Boeing. Okay. So sorry, I, I sent you on a tangent here. You were going to tell us how this background in materials engineering led you to Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. So, so all the materials stuff and the airspace stuff, you know, that, that can be a whole, whole can of worms. Um, and, and understandably, not everyone is, is going to be familiar with that. Um, but from a business perspective, uh, it's hard to think of a simpler business model uh, than, than what, what Mantis is doing. Um, so if you look at the, the markets for really strong, lightweight parts, it's, you know, aviation and space. Uh, a lot of startups just do space and small launch, which is, you know, on the order of 1% of the aerospace industry. Uh, but every component of the aerospace industry, um, you know, is, is built out of physical parts. Um, and most of what the aerospace industry does is it expends energy getting stuff off the ground. Um, if you look at the costs of a car, for instance, um, most of that cost is, you know, buying the car. And you have some cost, which is you have to fill it up on gas. An airplane, it's, it's actually the other way around. Filling it up on gas costs you more than the plane over the lifetime of the plane. Mm. Uh, so <laughs> there's a huge value in, in making those operationally more efficient. And it's the, the same thing or similar. It's about 50-50 on a satellite where um, your manufacturing cost versus your launch cost. And there, there's probably a big rabbit hole. To, oh, sorry. I didn't mean your, your audio delayed a little bit there, but there's probably a big rabbit hole to go down there too, in terms of like um, the, the ways the markets prioritize fuel production and how Avgas is different from, um, you know, like traditional gasolines. And cause like, I know I'm pretty sure that that's why some of the airlines refine their own fuel is just because um, the Avgas market is so small relative to the rest of the fuel markets. And, and it's so niche that they kind of had to step in and, and like be their own uh, fuel supplier in a way to, to give themselves a little more reliability. Likewise, like why a lot of the airlines speculate on futures, like around oil futures. Yeah, exactly. So that's a huge yeah. part of their, their OPEX, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And that's something that can, you know, take a while to, to plan and in terms of looking at designing commercial planes, uh, it's not something that happens with a ton of regularity. So if you want to say, oh, we, we want to make a completely different plane, obviously that's a, a very expensive and, and long process. And usually it's not a completely different plane. It's a, we're changing a few parts on the plane. Um, mm -hmm. there, there's a lot of other market 
in, in aerospace though. So you have your, your unmanned systems, satellites, um, different things like that, where you have pretty substantial markets where you don't have people flying on them. So the, the requirements to, to get into those are, are a lot lower. Okay. Uh, but yeah, what, what I was getting back to with the connection to Bitcoin is that, so this market of reducing weight in an aerospace system, the value of that is uh, around five to $20,000 per pound of weight saved, which is more than the average cost of the thing itself. Hmm. Um, so that, that's, that's a mass value. And, and there's this, this interesting curve you can draw out of that, which is as you, suppose you take a part that, that exists that, um, that, that weighs two pounds and you save 50% of the weight. Okay, you have a one part pound that saved you one pound. But let's say you can save 75% weight. Well, now you saved one and a half pounds with half a pound. So your ratio of, of how much material you're using, how much weight you're saving, starts shifting non-linearly. Mm. Which means that the more you go up this percent weight save curve, you get this, it eventually it trends toward infinity. Because if you theoretically could take a part that reduced 100% of weight, which obviously can't exist, you would have zero weight. And so you're saving infinite uh, pounds per pound that you put uh, but it's it's this, so what happens is that in some applications, not all, you end up being able to, to have parts that are worth more than their weight in gold in terms of the the value in that application, which is kind mm-hmm. of nuts. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, gold is going to be demonetized, so maybe that's less exciting <laughs> now. But you know, still. Uh, so this was a, a machine that can produce this with this very hard to, to replicate process with uh, a lot of software behind it and then with the ability to to get regulatory locked in because you know if you say to an aerospace company we have this uh, crazy new process um, they're going to say well is it worth switching and the answer here is yes and then they're going to get to work doing that but then you come out and say oh I have this other thing that's similar to what they did they're not going to go through all of that again for something that's a a lateral move. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's a really obvious business. And you can look at the things that people are funding in, uh, in the Bay area can look at the, the rocketry things, the EV talls, and there's a lot of dumb things there. Um, So, so my view was originally, it's going to be really easy to raise money with this um, because there's this easy money environment. Um, you know, people are raising tons of funds. Uh, but what I found was that wasn't the case um, for, for a number of reasons. I, I don't need to go into all of that. But eventually I realized, you know, we're not the ones that are doing something wrong. They're the ones that are wrong. Uh, so, so this was a, a bit of a paradox. You know, what's going on here? Uh, and then Bitcoin made it all click, which is these people are complete fools. How did they get all the money? That's well because of fiat in a natural free market environment. These people would not be allocating this capital. Um, there wouldn't be people allocating capital to dumb things, which then outbids us for hiring engineers, things like that. Hmm. Um, and, and that's sort of the, the Bitcoin fixes everything. My thing is, well, Bitcoin fixes aerospace. It fixes technology. Um, and it, it 
fiat was basically in the way of what I was doing, which is also why I think no matter what anyone is doing in life, they should be able to find their way to Bitcoin because whatever they're doing is going to be fundamentally impeded somehow by the fiat system. And Hmm. if they care enough, if they care sincerely enough about what they're doing, they will bridge that connection. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, that's, I, I, I have trouble kind of putting into words my frustrations with um, the VC culture, but man, what a joke. I mean, yeah, like, like I said, I have trouble putting it into words. You actually expressed it better than I think I can. Um, like so many of these things, you, you look at these products and you're like, did, 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 does this really need to exist? I don't know, man. I'm frustrated right now with like companies like Fold, who I know are doing things. They're only doing things because they're able to do them because they have VCs throwing capital at them. Uh, it, it, so they like they build these behavior systems around their products that are totally unsustainable and ridiculous unless you have free money constantly being thrown at you. And I don't know, they just make me want to puke. But uh, I, I do, I think you're right. Like Bitcoin does fix this because it changes the nature of incentives around capital allocation. And, and what a better world it'll be to live in when capital allocators are not the biggest fools in the room. Yeah, I, I have a friend who has uh, pointed some of the stuff with uh, CalPERS and the, the pension debt and how that ties into to venture capital. So uh, and people ask, well, why, why does vent, some people say, why does venture capital relate to, to Bitcoin and fiat? Um, won't there be technology and investment? And some people even go as far as to say they think it's actually a, a good thing because it spends money toward technology faster than we otherwise would have. And here's an example showing why that's wrong. Uh, <laughs> because the reality is you can't spend more money and get more technology faster because when you spend more money, it means you're spending less money elsewhere because money right. is not the value. Right. There's no energy. There's no actual thing tied to the money. It's just information. It's coordination. So if money goes somewhere, value is flowing there and away from somewhere else. So you right. can see with a startup that you know um, they can't necessarily pay as high of a salary, um, and you know Apple has a huge pass well a- apple actually sells a lot of useful things so it's n- not to say that apple's bad in, in that sense but just because they have uh, access to a ton of debt or you know some venture capital back company could have access to venture capital without producing anything they can just outbid people to to work on foolish things and from an individual's perspective um, it, it's hard for someone to just be stubborn and, and say no i'm going to to to, to work a, a, at this company because it's more efficient and more valuable. We can see that in how hard it is to align incentives with equity. Because it, it, in theory, if you could do it somehow perfectly, you could get small upstarts despite the fiat environment mm-hmm. um, uh, winning. And sometimes they do. But for anyone who's been in a startup or, or worked with early employees or been an early employee, you know how hard it is to line those things. And, and so as soon as you get beyond the simplicity of money as your, your base organizing principle, things get a lot trickier. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. Um, yeah. Yeah, in Austrian terms, the, uh, 
which what, what you're explaining is basically just the consumption of capital, right? I mean, you have all these people coming in and they have ac- art- uh, artificial access to um, disproportionate amounts of society's capital. And then they're consuming that capital. And traditionally speaking, if those ventures are profitable, then we'd assume that that capital was not wasted because it was invested in uh, products and services that were demanded by the market. But when our price signals are as greatly as distorted as they are and our, our capital structures are as distorted as they are, it almost doesn't even matter. Like as long as a business is producing cash flow, like in a lot of cases, it doesn't even matter if they're net profitable anymore, which is totally insane. And it's um, cannibalizing. Well, well there's a, another a- issue which I'd say it has to be even better. It's not an, even if they are both profitable and if they are profitable in, in real terms, if you normalize in a real way to inflation, mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean it's correct, um, which is, is an issue that I, I think people have when they compare the, the stuff to 1971 to now and they look at, at technological trends. Um, and I think we've talked about this a, a bit before. So the thing is... Uh, a lot of technologies actually have improved massively since 1971. Mm-hmm. We were having this discussion in aerospace, for instance, looking at, at the engines. And yeah, as, as a consumer, if, if you want to be like a dumb VC from the consumer perspective and say, oh, on the outside, it has the same shape. It's like on the inside, it's, it's a completely different thing. It's like looking at a phone or a laptop and saying, well, they're all brick shaped. I guess it's the, the same computing technology on the inside. No, it's, it's very different. And the thing is, it's how different is it? Is it good enough? Are there other aspects that are a bit more business aspects rather than pure technology that are flawed and, and there's malincentives everywhere? Sure. Um, the thing is, things are going up. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just because that's what humans do. We just build better and better tools and better technologies. And we are able to do that in spite of the hardships of fiat. And so it's not just did this business that was invested in provide something that is in absolute terms actually better? It's is it better than what the best possibility was that we could have generated um, under sound money? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's really the thing. It's that we would be even further along, um, but we can't compare present to past. We have to compare present to alternative reality, which mm-hmm. is a thing that most people don't do. It's the same thing when um, whatever, you know, the, those non-governmental agencies will, will have their propaganda of saying the world is getting so much better. Look at all this poverty that's uh, being uh, eradicated over the world. Um, and, and, and they say, why, why are people so upset? It's because it's the alternative possibilities. We knew that um, with the modern technologies, with the ability to consume and utilize more energy, poverty was going to decrease. That wasn't ever a question. Increase or decrease? Or the the poverty would decrease. Okay. Okay. All right. I thought we were going to have to have a totally different conversation there. <laughs> energy increase. No, you're you're good. Okay. Yeah. No, I, d- I definitely agree. Um, and and in a lot of ways, like I, I think what you're saying, I I agree as well. Like, um, the so far at least, you know, because. So the way that we're describing this is the the capital structures, you know, are are essentially creating drag on the trajectory, right? They're not necessarily changing the trajectory. They're just limiting um, its ability to like go where we want it to um, so far, right? Pro- provided some sort of black swan or extraneous event that that culminates with 
a, a total change in directory trajectory. Um, you know, like something like a, a total collapse of the monetary system, um, which, you know, arguably we're already getting pretty close to being ready for that and, and transitioning, just hopping over to the Bitcoin system instead and, and continuing on the trajectory with little more or less than a hiccup. Um, but yeah, I, I, we're getting a little bit uh, existential there. Um, so anyways, go on about... Yeah, um, I think the concept of drag seems like the right way to think about it. Right. It actually ties back really well to the material design example you were giving, where it's like we're we're still building with with the heaviest components. Uh, the drag is coming from the capital structure, and it's like we're designing, we're engineering everything because because money, because capital, right? Money is like the base layer of communication. We're building with the heaviest components, like at the base layer of engineering, which is money. Uh, no, no innovation there whatsoever, so to speak of. Oh, I think you muted yourself. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, tell us more about what it is that, that you're working on and what it is that you're trying to do differently. Um, and I, I know you've been, you've been talking a little bit on your Twitter about um, this trying, trying to raise some funds because you had said that you had run into problems with it. Um, just a minute ago, um, has it been, what's it been like interacting with Bitcoiners and like trying to get this idea off the ground? Well, the thing is, uh, the job of Bitcoiners is not to be investing in uh, ideas, good or bad right now. It's, it's to be hodling really, if you say jobs to be done. Mm. Um, so I don't expect, um, any Bitcoiners to, to be wanting to invest because it's, you have to clear the hurdle rate. Uh, of Bitcoin, which is impossible to do in a risk-adjusted way, um, even if you can have individual startups at an early, if you get in an early stage and then um, the valuation grows, you know, it can IPO or get acquired, then you can get a higher multiplier, um, but you can't really do that risk-adjusted. It's not something that's that's scalable, you know, if you want to put a, a billion dollars into it and get that return, it's, it's not possible. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I don't really see what I'm doing now as something where it's it's not it's not about the, the raising money and really what i'm working on now is a, a software project and software doesn't require that much capital to get off the ground uh it's a it's a lot easier than hardware um so what are you working on is it um I, software around the materials design no i'm not working on materials at all so <laughs> what i realized is and I realized this a couple years ago, which is that this stuff will be able to really take off after hyper-Bitcoinization. Um, and that's where, you know, I was thinking that's where I'll want to raise money from Bitcoiners. And I, I had sort of two parallel paths that I was thinking. One is if I can start a startup that can make a bunch of money, buy a bunch of Bitcoin before hyper-Bitcoinization, <laughs> um, then I can just self-fund all the aerospace stuff. And if not, one thing I realized was even if I'm not able to do that, it's not actually an issue. And, and there, there's this idea of, in, of you never have enough Bitcoin. I think that's, that's actually flawed. If you understand it to a certain degree, you always have enough. Because if you have something, 
from a, a physics perspective, that is actually the correct thing to be done in the world. And it actually is strictly superior to all the other things or, or just up there. It doesn't have to be the best thing. Then the money will flow to you to allocate and to build that thing because Bitcoin is so liquid. Hmm. Uh, and, and so maybe that's, that's kind of arrogant that I'm essentially confident that people are going to give me tons of Bitcoin to build all the things they want to build. It's just, it, it, it's, it, to me, it's, it's just a truism that that's what Bitcoin enables. So you're at this place of bill. And the thing is, if it doesn't happen, it, 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 the other side is, let's say big, I talk to Bitcoiners after I Bitcoinization, they say, no, your, your ideas are done. We don't like these materials. Um, well, then maybe I was wrong. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I can only be wrong after that happens. But, but I, I actually take it one step further, which is I could say, in the short term, Bitcoiners can, can be wrong in the sense that you still have to, to follow the laws of physics. So I'd say physics are actually more foundational than Bitcoin itself. So I have a concept that the, the only person that can tell a Bitcoiner to have fun staying poor is a chemical petroleum materials engineer sort of person, because <laughs> uh, that's the, the substrate of you know civilization itself. So if someone said, oh, we, we have this stuff, this petroleum, we can burn it. Let's say we had Bitcoin before oil. And they said, ah, no, we don't like the chemistry of that. We're just going to ignore it. Well, your, your civilization will still be poor for it because ultimately the, the value of Bitcoin is related to the technologies that exist in the world and the, the energy capacity in the world. Well, isn't that why we still delineate periods of history through their um, through their metallurgy, like the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, the Gold Age? Yeah. Yeah. And at this point, um, it might make more sense to just measure it just through energy. You know, the, the Kardashev scale, it's uh, you, you can interpolate it and, and you can have a, a decimal system added to it. I forget who it was that added a decimal system. But you can just track the base layer energy. And at some point, I'll probably put together a website to, to track some, some key metrics. You know, how much beef are we producing each year? How many uh, pounds of satellites are, are, are in the air? A lot of times people will have the, these sorts of metrics. You can get it from the, the World Bank or whatever. Um, and, and they just have too many metrics. And a lot of their metrics are not actually grounded in physical reality. They're not tied to energy. So they're not actually related to technology and, and the capacity. We, we need fewer metrics. Is the thing. Mm. Interesting. And, and people don't have good metrics. They don't have a good direction of how do we build things. You know, there's the Mark Andreessen put out some essay of it's time to build. He's, you know, big shit coiner guy. And it's okay. What exactly are are you building? How are you going to build? Building is the default state of humanity. You're not saying anything novel by saying let's build. People are already always building. So you need to say what's being built. Why are some things being built rather than others? And it it ultimately ties back to energy. So the answer, it's actually really simple. It's building the things that do a thing with less energy or do more of a thing with the same amount of energy. That's all there is. Every sound business and technology is built on that principle and nothing else. I think in a lot of ways, what you just said kind of summarizes the problem with loose capital is that you end up with a lot of hammers in search of a nail, whereas... Um, tr- traditional ways of problem solving 
is logical, meaning I have this problem. How am I going to engineer a solution to solve it rather than I've created this solution. Now I'm trying to find a problem for it to solve. Yep. And, and the, the core problems never actually change. Uh, there, there's this idea that there's sort of, you, you start with the idea of value being objective and then you figure out, okay, if there's not objective value, value is subjective. But after that, there's a third step where you go back and say, oh no, actually value is objective. And the way that works, this is my argument, is that um, the objective value is tied to the energy and the way life works is you, you do random perturbations where you discover um, more efficient things. And that discovery process that people do differently because you need variability to find those things, this sort of random walk, that is what subjectivity is. Subjectivity is how we execute those perturbations in order to find a lower energy state. Hmm. Okay, so, so what you're saying is that at, um, on an individual basis, value is subjective, but on a cumulative basis, value is objective because as society, our value is um, in, encapsulated by our energy potential. Yeah, is that, is that about what that you're saying? Even the individual has this has this seeking function that they're just oblivious to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that just goes back into what is life, um, which is Schrodinger's um, explanation that it's, uh, life is just the thing that um, uh, maximizes negative entropy, which is what humans do. We create order and we expel waste heat into the universe. And it just so happens that life is the, the most uh, efficient process for doing that. So if you take the, the cybernetic principle that the purpose of a system is what it does, you could go so far as to say the purpose of life is to maximize negentropy, negative entropy. Interesting. And the way we do that is by uh, making things more efficient from an energy perspective, uh, which is je- uh, because of Jevons' paradox, which is when you make something more efficient, let's say you make your plane more efficient, uh, uses less fuel, um, what will happen is more people will decide to fly. And that increase in people flying will actually exceed the efficiency boost. And what will happen is your base layer energy consumption actually goes up. So okay. growth overall is growth in the base energy. I, I think I can think of like an example of what you're saying. Cause I, and I'm repeating all this back to you. Cause I'm trying to make sure I'm following what you're saying. But um, the example being like burning a campfire, which it releases just a lot of heat is lost in that process, just into the atmosphere. A lot of the energy is just lost. And cause maybe you need to cook a piece of food or maybe you need to stay warm through the night versus um, you know, a, a controlled explosion in an internal combustion engine to drive a piston, right? Like you, we're talking about two total, like at the scale of the ability to capture um, that energy loss, like, and, and to control for that entropy in, in those two systems is, is vastly yeah, different. Or if, if we're able to, instead of just burning the trees, if we can get the trees and, 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 and build a structure out of them and put those things around us and then trap the heat inside, you know? Mm-hmm. modern buildings then we're getting, uh we don't need to consume as much fuel if we're burning a fire we could do less of that we can have something even better if we're using natural gas mm-hmm. interesting interesting <laughs>
So uh, your your thesis is um, build, but but hodl. <laughs> well, yeah. So yeah, and I, I think there is actually some possibility to to build now rather than hodling. My personal view is that I don't want to just wait until hyper bitcoinization to build things uh i don't want to just be waiting around uh and and that partly might be just because i have all these things to build and it, i don't have a lot of bitcoin to hodl so maybe if i had um more bitcoin I, i'd have to think about that in sort of a, an allocation way uh but part of it goes back to you know life is finite and the money is the coordination money is not the value itself uh so if you want things to exist in the world you have to go and do them while you're still alive and if you have other things you need to do it goes back to my idea of you know bitcoin will flow to you and the amount of bitcoin that people need from an individual perspective is that's really small the the value of having more bitcoin really is the ability to be one of those people that's deciding what are the things that we should do Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you have two ways of, of being that decision maker. One is you you actually start building the things and you can provide compelling evidence that it's worth doing, or you can just have a lot of Bitcoin. Obviously, having a lot of Bitcoin is the easier thing. So naturally, everyone prefers that. Uh, but it doesn't mean the other thing isn't an option. And, yeah. and so with that perspective, then people can just build realizing that time is really and then the limiting factor. And there's some things where you can't necessarily make up for lost time. There are, especially when you're, you're doing certain engineering things, you can't just say, okay, it's hyper-Bitcoinization. Now we're gonna throw all these funds to this problem. There are certain tasks that can't be paralyzed and unless you want to be really wasteful where you just set up a bunch of engineers doing parallel, somewhat redundant things to find out which is the correct way. It's really not efficient. What, what you, you do need iteration and series to a large degree. And those things are time constrained at an early stage. Uh, so I think there are situations where if you want to see certain things built in the world, it, it maybe not now, maybe it'll be, you know, circa $1 million Bitcoin. It might make sense to start doing the tinkering stage of, of developing different things. People think that developing advanced technologies is this super expensive process, but, but that's largely um, an academic. It's what happens with the university system and things just getting bloated and people not solving problems in the right way. Um, people do research based on the tools that are convenient to use rather than because they actually want to solve the problem. Um, and, and when you do research because you actually want to achieve a specific thing in and of itself, rather than because you just want to do research, uh, you can have tremendous outputs with very little input. So Mantis Composites, my company is an example of that. Um, I only spent a few hundred thousand dollars to, to get to the, the first carbon printing. Like we had carbon on the build plate and it had been printed. Of course, that was just sort of one key piece. Um, but if you understand the implications of that, that's all you need to, to know 
say, okay, we can go then go forward with this. Um, but that was not going, if you had given us a ton of money from day one, that wouldn't have really happened that much faster. Mm -hmm. And if you hadn't had the, the focus to begin with, like you started out with the problem and said, okay, how do I solve this problem? Um, you could have thrown all the money in the world at it and maybe exactly. never arrived, arrived, arrived at that conclusion. Yeah. Our, our CEO came up with the idea because he was in high school, but just building. And by the way, we, we're all college dropouts. Um, <laughs> that's another misconception people have that um, the college dropout thing only works for software. They're wrong. Um, they don't understand the, the, what the space of hardware is in the world and, and what tools are like and what are the things that actually lead to, to large jumps. He, he was building a, a, an electric motorcycle in high school and, and playing around with a really early wooden MakerBot 3D printer, the type that would catch on fire. And, and he was just doing some carbon fiber layups and thought, you know, it would be great if I could 3D print this material. And that is where you get that sort of sincere desire of someone actually wants to have the thing exist because they have a, a real need and, and a real purpose for it. And, and that sincere desire is really what drives things forward. Mm. This is the kind of stuff that, that um, really gets my brain going too, because I, I'm, I've always been fascinated by um, just all of the various aspects of engineering. I mean, I, I like to tinker with electronics and like, if you were to go to my dad's garage, you'd find a milling machine and a lathe. And um, I remember as a kid uh, helping him cut out parts. He had a bandsaw and, and I was helping him cut out pieces of wood that he had traced out designs on, on a, um, with a pencil, literally just traced out designs with the pencil because I was helping him build um, the fuselage and the wings for an airplane out of wood in his garage. And it, it always just fascinates me, like the, the amount of problems that people are able to solve with um, the right attitude and, and in the right environment, meaning like, you know, my, my, my dad has built things that I think many people would probably think are impossible in his garage, right? Just because he's the type of person that likes to tinker and, and encounters a problem and thinks, okay, how can I solve this? Uh, that's like the fundamental basis of engineering is, is just determining a solution to a problem, maybe not necessarily the most efficient or the best solution, but certainly a solution. And sometimes you arrive at a really good solution to that problem. Yep. And especially in, in engineering where you're actually building things, where you have a, a real output. Um, and science is, has very tightly coupled itself with fiat. Essentially, it's the decrees that this is how things are mm -hmm. versus with engineering. It's um, is there a plane or is there not a plane? It's not a theoretical plane. You don't declare that the flying does exist. Either you're flying or you're not. Right. right. I, I, either the plane crashes or it doesn't. You also can't declare uh, so, that it so will that's fly. This, it, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's far more rigorous. As science says, oh, we, we have this degree of confidence. So in engineering, the thing is just there, it's not. And that's why there's a lot of skepticism with science. And there, there should be because it's, it's tightly coupled now to fiat monetary systems. And it's completely distorted to the point where, you know, entire scientific fields are probably going to have to be thrown out all the literature. We can't trust it. We know how cheap academics are. 
Um, you know, you can find prestigious Harvard people that were. Uh, sometimes it's it's weird. It's, I, I I think it just takes time for for Bitcoiners to like go down the rabbit hole. They they hear someone that sounds like this crazy conspiracy theorist, and they're like, "Oh, that person sounds insane," as, as if you know people. I don't think most people start off that way. For me, it was a very just gradual process, step by step, of just getting more piece of data. Um, there was one thing I saw really recently on, on vegetable oils, where it was just so clear cut. Mm-hmm. where the where the type of air that they were making it was they were comparing different food groups for which causes obesity more and potatoes were on there but they also had they had mashed potatoes and they had chips like fried chips um, and they had french fries and if you look at french fries or chips by calorie um, it's actually more of a fat than it is a starch. And that fat is, of course, a vegetable oil. It's soybean oil or canola oil. Mm-hmm. And they put those things in the same category and call those potatoes. And I think it was some Harvard person, some prestigious person. And if you look at where it was funded by, it was funded by this massive food company that has interest in vegetable oils. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the the level of the, the fallacy and that sort of thing, and this is published, and from that you might get journalists writing and saying, this proves this thing, and then you'll have doctors regurgitating that too. When you look at the, the level of, of error in that, it, it, it really, it sounds dumb if you, if you don't believe in the, the don't understand the problems with vegetable oils. It's just so easy. It, it, it's as dumb as when that, that bank, I forget, it was Jamie Dimon was like, well, how do you know there's, there's like going to be 21 million? It's like that level of thing. And I think it's a psychological thing. It's the same reason that people struggle to get into Bitcoin. It's clinging to some aspect of their life and world because people don't want to see everything just collapse all around them because yeah. it's just psychologically distressing. Even if they're already a Bitcoiner, um, just because you're a Bitcoiner doesn't mean you're not still clinging to aspects of the fiat world. No, it's, it's pearl clutching, like totally. And, and it's pearl clutching in the sense that like, you're trying to protect your entire ego from shattering. And cause believe me, like I've lived it. And like, clearly you have too, like you've gone through many of those sleepless nights where you're sitting there thinking through the implications where you're like, man, if, if I'm right about this, like then everything is, is, is really broken, like irreparably. So, um, and, and the ways that it distorts, human behavior cycles and, and cooperation, um, you know, because like we, we want to be able to have faith in um, division of labor is ultimately what it comes down to. Like, I want to be able to put my faith in the scientist that says that his job is all about researching food and nutrition and health. I want to be able to put my full faith and credit in him to do that job. So I don't have to think about it, right? Because I have a million other things I have to think about. I don't, you know what I, I thought about the other day, the majority of naturally occurring fats, like in the vein of the seed oil thing, all naturally occurring fats, like because of their, their chemical structures are solids at room temperature, but all of these industrial byproduct fats that are in just about every food today are liquids at room temperature. What does that tell you? Like that should tell you something. Well, the, 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 olive oil is not too bad. Um, olive oil, avocado oils. oils. 
Well, the, the thing is, if you look through the research, it, it's, it's all there. All the stuff about how vegetable oils increase inflammation and inflammation is at the root of all disease. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not that hard of a problem to figure out. It's, it's easy enough that many people all over the world have figured it out. So if we just had um, sound science, that would just be the starting point. And then people would start doing research. The thing is, y- you can get little pieces of data that, that not everyone has about why it's wrong. So, so everyone knows the vegetable, everyone knows the, the fiat thing, but not everyone knows the thing that I know about blue blockers. Why? Because this is a product I made because it was a problem that I wanted to solve for myself. Um, so so I, I like doing different outdoor sports, hiking, mountain biking, that sort of thing. And, and I, I have an issue that I'm, I'm not very good at um, necessarily being committed to training the way some people are. So my performance is not great. And it's probably because of the over-intellectualizing things, thinking about things rather than doing enough perhaps. Uh, so I, in some ways I look in, in the hacker sort of mindset of how can I get more value out of less training, which is, you know, probably a, a, a dumb framework to think about, but I have it. The thing is I, 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 I'm better at it than most of you because I figured out, um, the, the thing about keto that, that lots of people know, but there's another step, which is the connection to sleep. Um, and it turns out that one of the a really simple reason our sleep uh, is is disrupted in the modern world is just um, the light that we have at night, mm. um, and that light triggers a cell that was only discovered in it was nineteen ninety eight to two thousand. There were a few papers where it was maybe in other animals first. There's a completely different cell in the eye that, that that's crazy like from biology perspective that we just found that that out the intrinsically photosensitive ganglion receptors something like that and butchering the name um and those actually don't respond to the entire spectrum of light they respond to blue and green light so you can make a lens that filters those out and you can have a sort of pseudo darkness this product is incredibly simple to build you could make a one dollar version of it get cheap glasses from from china that's what i did i made better looking versions of these because no one was doing it I, i started just wearing the ones that i could um the thing is, this should be like brushing one's teeth, right? Like everyone knows, you know, you can brush your teeth and then you don't get cavities. It's like, this is pretty basic stuff at like the level of, you know, why don't we have plumbing and clean water and then we'll have less disease. And so the fact that you have people all over the world whose job it is to do medicine, you, you have to wonder, why did they not also figure out this thing about blue blocking glasses? Because if you look at it, there's there's actually quite a bit of reason. It's obvious, and and the mechanisms, everything lines up. It's not some esoteric molecule that oh, we found this thing. Can we shift it? Um, it it's pretty simple, and we know that disrupting sleep is implicated in, in a wide variety of, of diseases and and deteriorating health. So why don't we have that thing? And just a data point like that just tells you there's something fundamentally wrong, which means that even if someone is, is theoretically good at doing a particular task, you can't trust their, their metacognitive skills, which is why you get things like, um, friends for myself, I haven't taken the COVID vaccine. I don't want it and I won't be taking it. Um, 
the thing is, even if they were right about the, the vaccine, the people that made it, and it actually did make sense to say, if you can't figure out the blue blocking glasses, there's no way in hell I'm going to trust you with the microbiology stuff because it's just so much more complex. And, and that's the thing. People don't realize what is the scale of, of complexity, what we know, what we don't know. And I look at this from my perspective with materials, too, where I read different um, papers. I have Google Scholar alerts to keep track of things. Um, and I see what people research. And a lot of times they do things that are very foolish, that are purposeless. Um, but even when they're, they're looking at things that make sense, it's hard to, to figure things out at a small scale. There's just so much complexity. Looking at something like what is, I just tweeted about, uh, what is the, um, the, the morphology of, or the, the structure of a thermoplastic, um, a semi-crystalline thermoplastic in between the fibers in a carbon fiber. And in these slender regions, how does it vary from the bulk and, and how is that going to shift the properties? And you can have entire disputes on, is it this shape or is it this other shape? Does this phenomenon exist or does it not even exist? And then you compare that to a biological system. And you say, well, wait a minute, this thing of, of at the scale of fibers, yeah, it's small. This is, this is a static thing. It's the solid chunk of material. You can't figure out what's going on, but somehow you can figure out what's going on in this biological system where you have interacting components with a nonlinear growth and complexity. And there has to be something to that that's humbling, where you realize it's really hard to, to know what's actually going on. Yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, I, I, well, who was it? Charles Darwin, who said that the, the eyeball and all of its invariable contrivances gave him cold shutters and keeps him up at night. Um, but that, that's unrelated. Um, it's, I found that I almost have to navigate the world heuristically now uh, because since I've discovered Bitcoin and in particular over the last two years with any remaining, um, ego-protective sensibility walls that I put up around myself to hide my, hide my, to hide and protect my ego um, from the reality have come crashing down. I've found that I have to navigate a lot of things just heuristically because I don't have time to develop um, any type of sophisticated framework for how I think about so many of these complex systems that we have to interact with. Like diet is just a, a simple example. And I'm just lucky that like, I actually have an educational background in nutrition. So like that, that's at least easier to navigate than, than some of these other problems. Yeah. And, and the heuristic, that's the, the key thing. So tying it back to the materials I was working on, um, we didn't have a, a theory uh, of how it would work or, or what the structure was. In fact, any time that I would try to think about theoretically, what would be the implications if we were able to make it, things just seem sort of weird. I thought, well, these are all the reasons these things won't work. This doesn't make any sense. How can you do this? Because I was thinking in from my knowledge of traditional composites. And what ended up happening is the things that enable this, the, the raw material itself is actually nothing new. Um, when, when I tell people, oh, okay, we have the strongest materials in the universe, they think, oh, is this like some super graphing thing? I, I bet they imagine, you know, beakers and, and different chemicals. This is 
what media would have us believe that that is what you know science looks like that was driven by science actually the things that enabled it were a massive decrease in the cost of different industrial components you know just like electronics still decrease there's deflationary effects and uh, you know stepper drivers control electronics mm. behind those the the global supply chain just e-commerce i mean something that seems relatively simple the the ability to to buy you know some random component that you need and get it really quickly the ability to get information about how to to build things through youtube um mm-hmm. you know, being able to to get esoteric materials from china through alibaba different everything just slowly gradually improving and all those things coming together to manipulate this material in a new way the ability to to write software for it um, and and control it with really good precision it it was all those things coming together it wasn't this super material Mm -hmm. and when you talk about things that already exist coming together that really is how most technologies uh, come into being and it's really hard to to predict what that's going to be which is why all you can have is, is a driving function of what do you really want to achieve. Yeah, software is a really great example. Like anybody who's never worked on software, like take a little time to think about the fact that software is basically giving instructions to computers that are flipping switches on and off in binary. I mean, and I and I can go and download a Python library that's going to give me the ability to, I don't know, tell my mouse cursor what pixel to go to. Like it's, it's, um, when you, when you think about like how software is iterative and like we've been building and building and building on top of essentially just binary for the last 50 or 60 years to the point now where um, it's so much easier um, and it's so much more uh, use the word precision. You, you can interact with uh, computers and their ability to interact with systems with so much more precision because of how much we've iterated on top of software and um hardware components too like that makes a lot of sense boy and and what a damaging thing it is now right that that we're at this unfortunate unfortunate precipice where fiat is sort of approaching its end game uh, and we're watching it have all of these disruptive effects on so many of these things that have been really beneficial in our ability to solve problems like this um, accumulation and and um, aggregation of information online which is being disrupted these global supply like seamless global supply chains that have had huge deflationary effects on markets being disrupted. Um, all of it's kind of coming to a head, isn't it? I mean, that, that's a shame. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate, and and really, I I've been wanting to get back to 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 building things. I mean, the vacuum balloon. It was. I don't know. I, I just personally think it would be really cool. It's, I, I see it as sort of the ultimate materials uh, engineering challenge. Um, and I, I'd like to build it even if it ends up being entirely useless. At this point, I don't, I don't really even care anymore because <laughs> at some point, a, a business is sort of like a, a conjecture. Um, and when the business is incredibly successful, that is the proof that it was correct. You know, I, I, I'm sort of, I'm a bit of a math guy. I minored in math. I like math. I had a professor who said I should have been majoring in math. There's a joke that I guess most people have already heard of. You know, a mathematician walks by uh, a room and he sees a, a small fire in the corner and he sees a table with a bucket of water on it. He says, ah, a solution exists. 
any uh, any leaves. Uh, and, and so that's sort of the, the math approaches. Once you know that it, it's it's possible, then it's it, there's some aspect of it that becomes less interesting. And you know, again, it's um, people might say I'm arrogant, but I've already thought through the solutions. So in my mind, I already know I'm a billionaire in the sense of I know the implications of the things I've built in a sound economy. So the fact that fiat doesn't accurately reflect that, that's fiat's problem. That's the world's problem. The world is poor for not having the technologies as mature. But, you know, I know the solution exists. I've figured it out. So, but yeah, I do want to get back to the things like the vacuum. The vacuum balloon it is a thing that maybe people can understand more. People don't appreciate the modularity of technology that like you were saying of things being built on binary. It's just anyone who's interested, there's a, there's a really good book by Brian Arthur, The, the Nature of Technology. I think that's, that's a good read. Um, yeah, there's all these components to it. A vacuum balloon, though, is, is a whole platform. It's this big, shiny object that attracts interest. That's how people invest. They want big, shiny objects, things like rockets and flying cars, um, regardless of of whether it actually makes sense or if there's a technological advancement. What people don't realize is that when you make the big shit, chances are there's a lot of things that are not innovative within that big shiny object. And those things cost a lot of money because you have to rebuild them from the, the ground up in a lot of ways. You have to re-implement them. And what actually ends up happening um, for a startup is they are so capital constrained, they actually end up often using the not the the most innovative version they deprecate the quality across many subsystems uh, and can't really afford to actually be that innovative at the component level and you're going to run out of things you can do eventually you can build clever things at a system level and maybe make a good business when you're not pushing the technologies forward but if you really want to push something forward Unless you have an absolutely ludicrous amount of capital, which, yes, yeah, some Bitcoiners will, so this might shift things a little bit, you can't reinvent the whole system. It, you're, you're going to get a lot further in terms of technological leverage on a subsystem. Hmm. Um, yeah, and the, the level of capital, if you want to actually say we're, we're building aircraft and we're going to do it completely different and we're going to push forward on every subsystem technology well if you have tens of billions of dollars that you're going to put into one company to do that sure but that's also probably a, a pretty risky bet and and so when people are doing it with a few hundred million dollars it's not really going to pan out so well especially when there's a hundred copycat versions of it hmm. interesting I might not be connecting things well enough there, sort of ranting a bit. <laughs> That's okay. I think I think we're both doing a bit of that, but it's all right. Th these are interesting topics. Um, I don't know. I don't know that I have a whole lot more to add. I'm I'm certainly not as much of an engineer as you, although I'm trying to get there. Well, okay. What I was trying to get to is that. It would be nice to get back to these things. And I actually, I, I, I tried to, to build some other things since leaving Mantis Composites. I've had different projects in the world of atoms. Um, and I guess, uh, I guess I'm, a, I'm a slow learner because um, I, I thought I learned this thing of you can, can't really build stuff under fiat, but I had to be taught that lesson a couple more times. Um, now I finally get it. 
which is really just focus on Bitcoin, um, <laughs> which is what I finally realized that the only way to get the things built is by bringing about hyper Bitcoinization faster. And yeah, I think in the past right. sort of eight months, I've been thinking about different ways of doing that after talking to lots of people on, on Clubhouse, looking more close at what different companies are doing that. Um, and I started having ideas of, of things where as, you know, I think I can actually do something better than what people are doing now. It's very different from how I started when I first got into, into Bitcoin. Um, sometime after getting into Bitcoin, I started doing uh, Justin Moon's programming course. I've done that. And I actually abandoned that partway through to work on a business with the idea of, okay, I, I want to just try to make more Bitcoin. But the other thing I really thought is, you know, there's so many smart people um, building really cool things here. Um, what am I going to contribute learning to be a program? Maybe I can help a bit, but, uh, you know, Bitcoin doesn't need me. Um, it, it's going to be just fine, which more people should take that approach first. So I, I, I just want to clarify that that was my starting point. Only much later did when I actually had some ideas that I think, okay, I want to work on things related to Bitcoin. I didn't really start with the premise of, I want to build something related to Bitcoin. What should I build? Right. Right. Um, yeah. That's how you end up with like another, yeah. another podcast or something stupid like, like that, which, you know, here I am guilty actually. And now I understand what you, what you said at the beginning there, where you said um, that if you internalize the Bitcoin framework well enough, it almost doesn't even matter whether or not you have quote unquote enough. Now I understand the context of why you're thinking when you said that, because you said that in your head, you're already a billionaire because of the problem that you solved, but we have to get some hyper Bitcoinization for that uh, idea to be profitable, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So the, I, I've just been thinking about how do we speed up bitcoin and and I, I think i have some better ways of doing it than the the things that uh people have been doing um i'd like to hear your ideas can you tell me because i'll tell i'll tell you two of mine tell me two of yours yeah, yeah. so it's this company wage vest i'm starting um and unfortunately the, the more i've i've been active on sort of bitcoin twitter which i only started sort of at the beginning of this year um well, I realized, you know, Bitcoiners have their foolish ideas too. Um, I managed to 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 sneak into the 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 Bitcoin twenty twenty one whale pass. I managed to sneak, and I didn't actually have a ticket. Um, but I overheard in the standing in line in in one of the whale areas that um, someone talking about nanotech, and just regurgitating the same sort of thing people might see in in mainstream media. This not non-understanding of this okay anyway the, the point is uh, just because someone's a bitcoin doesn't mean they're brilliant mm -hmm. and there's still a lot of foolish people and so yeah also in, in addition to accelerating uh hyper bitcoinization if i can start a, a, a large business before bitcoin's at let's say one million then i can just self-fund all the aerospace things um so wage vest is it's essentially an arbitrage play on the Kantian effect. Um, it's a way of uh, breaking that whole system, which is that corporations primarily have access to cheap debt, but they're not utilizing it. Um, mm -hmm. they're, they're essentially wasting um, the value that could be captured by having all that cheap debt. 
Um, so I'm trying to create a, a system where they're competitively forced to start capturing the value of it in ways that are not going to get blocked because they say, oh, our boards don't want us to have Bitcoin. So I'm Trojan forcing Bitcoin into corporations is, is really the macro thing of what I'm trying to do. Um, and the way I'm trying to do that is, is bleeding that excess value and passing it through to employees. And so the implementation of that is um, having salaries that are denominated in non-dollar assets. Um, so the, the whole paying in Bitcoin is dumb. Um, the transacting, it's, it's not dumb everywhere, but in, in a lot of situations it is, especially if, if it's a U.S. company, if it's all KYC, then it's probably almost always going to be dumb. It's, it's dumb PR. You know, maybe people want to say, oh, it gets uh, normies interested. Okay, I, I don't care. Um, because mechanistically, it's not really shifting anything because you can just, you know, strike has their thing of direct deposit, allocate a portion immediately into Bitcoin and a bunch of other companies will start offering that too. And people can just do that themselves if they want with a two-day latency, which is not that big of a deal. Um, and run their own scripts if they wanted. Uh, but denomination is, is really where things start to shift, where the contract itself stipulates um, we have to pay you a certain amount of Bitcoin every interval. Um, um, they, I'm not the, the only person who's mentioned these sorts of things. That sounds incredibly um, dangerous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. So it's it's how do you actually get that to work? How do you get that to work at scale? It's just, what does that mean? Say um, you're guaranteed a salary in Bitcoin because the default is just in dollars. It's, you know, this is for an indefinite period of time. We give you any dollars per interval period. But if you say that with Bitcoin, and at some point, that's going to be very problematic because the company will find, you know, we don't have that much Bitcoin to pay you or this Bitcoin is worth so much, we would rather fire you. Mm -hmm. um, so there's, there's conflicts there. And there's the other conflict that if you make it just Bitcoin, um, that still scares most companies. Um, so what I'm developing is a tool that allows companies to denominate um, salaries in, in stocks, starting with stocks rather than Bitcoin, with understanding that, well, if, if people understand Bitcoin, they'll just go all in on MicroStrategy. Um, and because of the, the way this product works, where it's at this temporary stage, having it not be natively Bitcoin is not that big of a deal because when people get paid, then they can move it into Bitcoin. Um, so it, it's a way to, to set a certain time period which initially it's going to be a year out where a company guarantees a certain amount of stocks um, in addition to a certain amount of dollars. And those get actually all settled themselves in dollars. So all the transactions actually happen in dollars. So in that sense, I'm sort of a, a dollar transaction maximalist for the time being. Um, because it's really about the store of value more that that's the next step of the store of value, not transaction. Well, it's, yeah, we want to, to work with the USD transactions because that is what people are using now. And it's not going to switch overnight, even if you have really good rails for doing other things, because 
major companies are still going to be complying with, you know, accounting, employment, taxation regulations um, for the foreseeable future, uh, which means they want to be using all the tools that they're already familiar with and using all the tools in USD. So if you can allow them to do that, just create this black box where things happen with Bitcoin that preserve value over time or with stocks as sort of a, a worse version of, of, of money, um, then you can have something that can actually integrate at scale. So it's it's not even a purely Bitcoin company. Purely Bitcoin companies can be limited in, in how much they can scale. It's a, it's a SaaS fintech product um, that, that anyone can use. There's a lot more upside. And then it just becomes this tool that exists um, that shifts how things are actually operating. It's not just marketing. Like a lot of things that are exchanges or rewards or something like that, it's just trying to, to market the idea of Bitcoin to people, but it's not necessarily even marketing it that well. Because uh, this thing is pretty interesting because everyone realizes that things are getting more expensive now or more people are realizing it. And so I think this is a good stepping stone to Bitcoin. You have someone getting paid essentially partially in stocks, which leads to the question of why is the money so bad that I have to get paid in stocks? And I think that question is a far more compelling um, argument toward Bitcoin than just directly talking about Bitcoin. I think the indirect ways of really incepting the idea of Bitcoin where people come to themselves is, is going to, to work a lot more reliably. That's a difficult one to contend with because I've found in my conversations with normal people that um, they've pretty much internalized and just accepted the nature of this paradigm that is dollars go down, assets go up, right? And like they, there isn't really any inquiry into why or how beyond just yeah dollars get cheaper or dollars did dollars go down in value houses and stocks only go up dollars only go down um so that that can be difficult to contend with just that, in this true. yeah and because like and you'll find this like get into a conversation with someone who's recommending that you become a real estate speculator and if you try to pick apart why they're just going to basically tell you at the end of the day, their argument is going to be because houses only go up. Right. And like, how, how can you even argue with like, you, you can't argue with that. Like, cause they're not interested in the conversation about monetary economics. Um, you, you're talking about two totally different worlds, right? They, they, they know the inflation is there. They've determined a strategy for how to protect themselves from it. And that's what they're going to do. So yeah, I, I would worry about the incentives of that product. I mean, it's certainly, it's a compelling product, but I would worry about like, okay, what are the incentives of implementation? Well, yeah, I'm not worried. And, and but that's, it, it's exactly because I recognize that why stocks are so important to have. Because if, if we just said um, we want it to be Bitcoin only because of all the people that have that sentiment, it just wouldn't be able to grow, wouldn't be able to reach a, a large scale quickly. Mm. It would be this niche product the way a lot of Bitcoin <coughs> products are. Um, I think there might be a slight difference in the stock sort of being part of this transactional contract. But yeah, it's, it's still pretty similar. Um, the thing is, that they don't need to be... It's 
sort of it's the the remnant versus normies it's more about just having the tool there for them Mm -hmm. um when they're ready to use it is one part of it the other thing is having that tool be accessible with the lowest possible latency um i think people sometimes underestimate just how much that can matter where if you have uh, how many buttons do you have to press to decide to get into bitcoin what sort of registration process do you have? And if you can have something where someone is already on a platform where it's really easy to just switch into Bitcoin um, versus having to register for an app that they're not registered for, that can make a difference. But the other thing is, um, from perspective of, of preserving value and arbitraging the Kantian effect, um, this does achieve that. Because Mm -hmm. stocks are a target of monetary inflation. It's not going to go up as much as Bitcoin, but it will prevent um, the the degree of devaluation that salaries will otherwise have. Right. Um, And it is, it's, it's bleeding this uh, ability for corporations to capture seniorage. Um, Well, that's actually the, the way this is implemented. Go ahead. The, the way this is implemented is it's creating a market between the employers and the employees because it's not free. There is a cost to a company to do this. So the way it'll actually work is the employee will take a small pay cut. And so you might say, oh, I don't want to take a pay cut, but just for an example, imagine taking a 5% pay cut and having your salary fixed to a certain amount of Bitcoin for a year. You'd probably do that. So it's the same sort of concept. Um, so people are, are really paying for it and it's creating this buyer of debt sort of. Um, so the corporation gets at a certain interest rate an individual cannot get that interest rate at that scale. They're getting access to this cheap debt. So their ability to, to capture the returns of stocks, that alone is, is huge. It completely shifts the, the power of that system. The other thing it does is it creates this runaway effect. So imagine this were to happen at scale with large corporations. What it would do is it would take this cheap debt and reinvest it into stocks. And then those stocks would go up and be able to access more cheap debt and give it to their employers. So if, if you run that out, it's essentially breaking any like choke points that exist within the fiat system to prevent things from spiraling upward too quickly Uh, so it's just it's almost trying to to accelerate the inflation of stocks so um my ideas around this have actually evolved a lot like really recently and and i think so it's i think the 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 issue here is just the implementation on the business side she's like what's the incentive um, not the incentive for the consumer to like demand this or not the consumer, I guess, rather the, the employee or the laborer would be a better way to put it. Um, Cause I can certainly see the appeal. Like if I was an employee and like business offered this, I would probably say, yeah, let's do that. That sounds pretty interesting. Um, the implementation for on the business side is I think a little bit harder, which is why I think it's interesting Um I was saying that the thing that I've been thinking about recently a lot lately and where my mind has really changed is this idea of banking on Bitcoin um, in the sense that 
I take like a traditional uh, checking account. Uh, to my knowledge, there aren't really too many services that exist yet that do this. Like really only level um, is the one that's doing it. But you basically have a, a traditional banking account, but all of it is denominated in Bitcoin rather than in fiat. So for all intents and purposes, when I swipe my debit card and make a purchase at a point of sale, my my bank account is all denominated in Bitcoin, right? But when I make that purchase, I'm paying with dollars. It's just immediately converted at point of sale to the to the merchant who who accepts dollars, right? For obvious reasons. Um, but all of like all of my liquid capital, like um, for most people that would that would want this service, I would think that they would be hundred percent in is in Bitcoin, denominated in Bitcoin, like down to the last penny. Like I hold zero dollars. Um, I think that that's actually a really compelling um, model, especially as we're seeing like as this market grows, like volatility is starting to decrease. And you're, if you're looking at this on like a time scale, anything beyond like a year, um, the the financial benefits of just going all Bitcoin, like in your banking, like is at your most liquid capital actually makes a lot of sense, like a lot more than it did like four years ago. Oh yeah, I, I completely agree. I was pitching that idea along with a few other components uh, back in March. Um, no one gave me money to do it. And it was more than what I could bootstrap that sort of product. Um, and, and, you know, funnily enough, we have the, the thing happen that always happens, which is the shit coiners end up being uh, more innovative because the Bitcoiners don't want to invest in things. Mm. Uh, so level is, is run by a shit coin. It offers shit coins uh, as part of level. Yes. And that might be shifting. It's true. The other company is, is get swipe. I've talked to the, the founder of, of that company, also a shit coiner. Um, and they also have a bunch of shit coins and they do a similar thing where you have, um, you actually have a custodial, um, the Bitcoin or shitcoin wallet. And then through the app, you have to send funds in conjunction with swiping a card. I think it's the greatest UX. Um, it's interesting. There's shitcoiner, but, um, self custodying maximalist. I don't agree with that principle. I think to have a small spending checking account that you reload with, custody um bitcoin is fine oh totally yeah no because that's still a 10x 100x improvement over the current system like self-custody long-term state or self-custody like cold storage savings quote-unquote and then having like a hot checking account that's custodied with a third party like that that's not that's a non-issue yeah all, all those things will happen um the thing i realize now as i've been working more on software is, is some of the things people have said that didn't make sense before start to make sense, such as the, the saying first time founders focus on products, second time founders focus on distribution. And, and to me that, that seemed a bit silly from the aerospace perspective. Um, but, but now it sort of makes sense, which is, that's the thing I've been considering, which is with this product that I'm building, um, I build the inroads with the employees and the employers, which means I'm right there to shift into a product like that, as well as various other products. Hmm. And I don't think there's anything else that can get the sort of distribution that Wagefest will get. Mm-hmm. Um, to your question of, of why will companies use it, because as you mentioned, there's huge value to the employees, which is why they'll pay for it. Um, they're paying for it with a pay cut. So if, if, if you get a, a typical, any sort of software product as a company, the company spends money to have access to this product. This product makes the company money. Right. 
Right. Uh, and, as soon and as in they this start case, using it, their expenses it, drop. In this case, the majority of the cost is going to be passed on to the end user. Is what you're saying? Because because no, the, the pay cut that they're going the well because of the pay cut that they'd be taking essentially in the agreement. Because you you mentioned the five percent well, pay cut. It's really it, it's a product that the company can sell to their employees. So they're not taking a hit because it's it's like any capitalist transaction where it's positive sum. Mm-hmm. Cause it's it's this market making thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I get that. I, I understand that part. It makes sense. Um I'm guessing I'm, I'm just talking about the, the losses. Good. The 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 loss is the fact that the company could, in theory, just go all in on Bitcoin and capture all those gains themselves. But they're not doing that. Mm-hmm. As soon as they start to do that, the product is no longer useful. But as soon as that happens, that's hyper Bitcoinization. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's about. I guess it's about building the the stepping stones to get there, right? Or it's like bringing hyper Bitcoinization forward um, in 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 behavior patterns, right? I, I don't think that it's going to happen. Um, I, I think that 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 is emergent behavior, right? Like building out these systems that allow people to start acting in those ways now rather than saying, okay, it will be at some point in the future that we'll all do this. Um, it's, it's going to be emergent rather than like a, a destination, I think. Yeah. Another thing is you, you take a product like, let's say, Robin Hood. Robin Hood will never say to its users, if you want to use our app, we force you to have 10% of your portfolio in Bitcoin. You don't have a choice. If you want to use it, 10% is in Bitcoin. That's just never going to happen. With I'm, what I'm building, that very well might happen. <laughs> uh, we might say we are rolling out an update that's, you know, maybe we'll give people some warning to make sure we're not violating our duty of care. And we'll say, you know, at some point going forward, we're going to have this transition and to reduce the, the risk to all the parties involved and the fact that stocks are shit coins, maybe we won't use that phrasing. Um, we are going to, to require that um, a portion of this is in Bitcoin and it's going to be at least 10%. And this will be implemented by default. If you do nothing, we will automatically move you into Bitcoin. And suddenly we could take these huge amounts of corporate cash and just buy Bitcoin with it on their cash. You're, you're, I, I can think of the have, language right now. You're eliminating the counterparty risk prone to um, securities investments and valuations. Yeah. And, you know, um, the, the, there are quite a few patterns that can be built into the app just to shift people toward Bitcoin. At, at some point, we have when people choose what do they want to allocate to? Bitcoin just shows up at the top and you have Bitcoin and, and micro strategy and different things. Right. Um, and then you can have subtle or, or more extreme things. I think all you need is just a, a, a real-time counter that shows your user how much their net worth would be if they were banking 100% on Bitcoin. Like since yeah. the day you opened your account, yeah. if all of your funds were denominated in Bitcoin, like since the day you started using this product, here's how much you'd be worth, 
right? Like that, that's, that's the golden ticket right there. Yeah. You have the, the, the analytics tab and the analytics, if you had gone all in right. on make, make the opportunity, put the opportunity cost into your user's face. Um, well, and, I think, and, and, and I, I have validated from talking to companies that the, the concept does work. Some people get a bit confused. Some people say, absolutely. Yes. We very much want to use this as soon as it's ready. Um, because they, they, they face an issue, not just, it's not just that they can make a little bit of a savings in their, their payroll expenses. It, it, it's a huge benefit from an employee perspective which means they can win over talent. They can then have a far more competitive offering. It's like if you say this has, we offer remote work or we force you to come into an office. It's the new benefit that's at the same tier as remote work. Mm. Uh, and so that's, that's what's going to drive people to, to be forced to use. I'd say if anyone here wants to, to have access to it, either as a company or as uh, an employee, um, to, to let me know, to reach out, to follow me on Twitter. Um, at some point, I will be trying to, to raise a ton of venture capital because that's the only way to, to build a company now. It's, it's to take the fiat rails and try to pump it as much as possible and then IPO and uh, turn it in Bitcoin. It's like a shit coin, um, but it, it, it's actually built on top of something. So build a shit, a shit coin on top of a company, which is what a company is. You have that's to have a monetized stock. That's the new business development meta, right? Pump the numbers, get the VC bucks, turn it all into Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, and, and most Bitcoin startups can't do that, or few of them can. Right. Um, but this being, that's why the being stocks is, is, is uh, I'd say it's a breakthrough. To do it that way. Um, so speaking of which, where can, I, I think we should wrap this up. I think we've been going long enough. Um, Maybe I'll, I'll have to have you back on sometime yeah. and we can chat some more. But uh, speaking of which, where can people find you should they want to go check out, follow you on Twitter or whatever, check out what you're doing? Yeah, so there's the the company Twitter, which is just at WageVest. Um, and my Twitter is at M Shapiro. Um, yeah, if people want to follow the, the, the company Twitter account, or if they want to use it. Um, I also have a, a customer deck with more details explaining uh, the implementation. Um, getting feedback from customers now is helpful. We'll, we'll have the, the app launched in probably sometime in January is when we should have the, the first iteration out. And just anyone who wants to be part of that, that first launch would be helpful to know. Um, just getting that feedback also helps when and talk to investors to, to have that validation. Awesome. I'll put links to your Twitter accounts down in the show notes for anybody listening who wants to check that out. Uh, Michael, it was a pleasure, man. I enjoyed this conversation. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show.